The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is good to be here with you all, uh, bringing God's Word. If you are here for the long weekend, uh, enjoying uh, some time away, we uh, want to welcome you to our church and also let you know that you picked a good kind of one-off Sunday to attend as a visitor. We are in between sermon series right now. We just finished uh, a sermon series in the life of David called Undaunted, and then next Sunday, uh, that's why we're doing the evening in the Psalms, Sunday before, we're continuing for a fourth year in a row our Summer in the Psalms series. So uh, this week is an in-between week, and we're going to be looking at a text uh, in 1 Peter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me there. 1 Peter 3, it'll also be on the screen behind me. You're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18. 1 Peter 3. 13 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord to you this morning. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect." having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. If that should be, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Pray with me. God, I pray now that the words in this text would speak louder in our heads than anything, than any other voice, than our voices than the culture's voice. God, we, we know the power of the gospel, and so we pray now that, that you would open our hearts and our ears to your word, that you would work through me, a sinner. God, that you would do a work in us today that shows us just how beautiful it is that you have washed us white as snow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a little context here for for First Peter. Uh, Peter was writing this letter to mostly Gentile Christians, uh, also some Jewish Christians, but he's, he's writing this to them saying a couple things. Mainly he's starting to say, hey, in light of the fact that you are a Christian now, uh, there's conduct that's required. There's, there's something that you have to do. You have to live differently in light of now who you are in Christ. He's saying this, this reality has to take root, and it has to, to set you apart. It, things have to be different now since you're a Gentile Christian, no longer just a Gentile, because you've been given a different status. And I'm going to be honest with you guys, I really struggled with this text this week, trying to think through what like, the main point was to bring you, because there's a lot in here that we could cover. Uh, this text is often used as kind of a springboard for talking about apologetics, that verse in, in uh, 15 where it says, make, be ready to make a, a reasonable defense for the faith, for the hope that is in you. Uh, there's also a lot about suffering and persecution uh, and how a Christian thinks of that in, in light of the gospel. But I think if I had to pick, and, and I did pick, and here's the big idea for us this morning. It's that this text presents a kind of a 30,000-foot view if you could step back and take a look at what the life of a believer looks like. It's that first... And there's a reason that that's first, our heart has to be changed by the gospel. Mainly, we have to understand a fact that Christ brought us to God. 
That's called the indicative. You guys have heard us say this before. That is the, the truth that you have to start with before you can talk about what it is that you do with it. And after that is the imperative. This is the command that in light of that truth, starting with the truth, the indicative, that we have been brought to God, that imperative has to follow. It has to inform. And so that's, what's Peter, that's what Peter's saying, is that there's a command that now is demanded of you in light of the truth that you've been set apart for the Gentiles. And so if you're a point person, note taker, that's our three points. Our first is the indicative, it's the truth. And then the second is the imperative, the command. And then the third is the response of what's the point of those? What is the Christian life then pointing towards out of that? The indicative, the imperative, and the response. So the first point, point one, the indicative. Uh, I already said that this was written to Gentiles, and something's easy to miss here that we might just kind of skim by. It's written to Gentiles, and you've got to remember about Old Testament history. The gospel was not really for Gentiles. It started with Israel. And then as God's uh, unfolding plan of redemption took place in the scriptures, uh, part of the New Testament is that the gospel is being communicated and more and more is being understood that the gospel is for everybody, Jew, Greek, every tribe, tongue, nation. The gospel is for everybody. We're doing an Adult 360 seminar uh, Sunday mornings at 9, and we're going through Acts, and that's partly what makes this study so exciting, is that the book of Acts is talking about this, of, of bringing the gospel to people that thought it wasn't for them, and saying it's for everyone, it's for every tribe, tongue, and nation, it's for Jew, it's for Greek, it's for Gentiles, the gospel is for everyone, so I want you to picture that you're a Gentile, and you weren't used to this, and then you hear, you get this letter from Peter, where he's writing this, listen to this reality, this is just before our text, he's talking to the Gentiles, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Folks, this was, this was Jewish language in there, chosen, set apart. If you were a Gentile, you would have maybe heard this part and thought, oh, wait, he's not talking to me. That's, that's for them. Peter's saying, no, no, the gospel is for you. And so you would have heard this and been just astounded at the reach of God's grace coming to you. And you also would have probably been thinking, how is this possible? How is it possible that, that I was once far off from God and now the gospel has come to me? And that's why our first point with the indicative, we're starting, I know I read it as the last verse, but we're starting with verse 18 from our text. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That is the indicative. That is the fact, the truth that we have to start with, that it doesn't make sense to move on to anything else from here until that just sinks in and we understand it, that Christ has brought you to God. That's what we have to start with. And look at what it says. It's easy to miss, but it says, Christ also suffered, how many times? Once, for sins. This was, this was going to be shocking for probably both Gentiles and Jews who were used to the Old Testament where they constantly were bringing animal sacrifices and they were needed time after time and, and over and over again. And now Peter comes and says, one sacrifice, that's it. 
Done are the days where you continue to have to bring an animal time after time. One sacrifice is good enough. And I imagine both for the Jews, the Gentiles, and still for us today, we have trouble with that once word. We say, really? Once? That's all it takes? We don't have to continue to pursue God's grace? There's nothing on us that we can do? And Peter comes, and God comes, and says, one sacrifice is good enough to cover everything. And that should be shocking to us. And here, kind of with every point, I like to ask a test question for us. And so here's my question for you this morning. Does this grace still shock you? Does the idea that God saw fit to come, and assuming that, that you're a believer, came into your life, softened your heart, showed you his gospel, changed you, moved you statuses from one family of darkness to a family of light, adopted you as a son and daughter, and now has given you all of the rights and the inheritance to everything that Christ has. Does that still shock you? Because it needs to. There's a sense in which we have to still act like a Gentile who, when this was told to us, we think, oh my gosh, it's for me. Oh my gosh, the gospel is for me. It's, it's not just for others. It actually can take root in my life. And I don't think, I'm not just speaking at you. I want you to know I'm, I'm, this is an indictment on myself as well. And the reason that this no longer shocks us, I think there's two. The first is that we think we deserve the gospel. Right? We deserve to be Christians. Of course I'm a Christian. My mom and dad raised me in the church. Of course I'm a Christian. Uh, I've, I haven't done like the big sins that even culture will say, these aren't appropriate. Of course, I'm a Christian. We think that we deserve the gospel. We think it makes sense why God saw fit in his wisdom and grace to come and save us. We sometimes do that. The flip side of that, the reason why the gospel doesn't always shock us anymore, is that we look at it and we say it's too good to be true. Really, God? All my sins? All my shame? That stain? That, that, that stain on my clothes, that stain on my life, on my account, that really is gone, are you sure? Here's why this is so hard for us to actually truly believe, I think, at least for me. It's because everything else in life has a cause and effect relationship. Everything else in our lives, with jobs, with relationships, uh, there's always repercussions. And the gospel comes in and says, not only is there, is there not a cause that you create? There's a cause, but it's Christ, and you receive the effects. That is so counterintuitive to everything else that we experience in this life. And if you feel like we constantly preach one message over and over again and that we're not creative, that's probably a good sign because we need to have the gospel beaten into our heads week after week because it's so different from every other message that we hear. We need to be reminded that that sin that we just told God, I am not going to go back to that sin when it happened again yesterday, that that one is still washed clean. We need to be reminded that our shame is taken care of. I heard a, a statistic this week, or an insight that children experience shame before they experience guilt. That at as early as 18 months, a child, when they do something wrong, they skip guilt and they go right to shame and they think, I'm wrong. And you know what? There's some ways that I wonder if we ever actually have gotten over that in our shame. And that's why this is so hard for this to sink in, that the gospel has come in and fully given us a new identity and it actually sticks. We're not used to our, our identity sticking, right? We go through seasons where we think we're doing okay and then when we fail, 
and we make an indictment on ourselves, and Christ comes in and says, permanently, for all time, for all eternity, this is who you are. If you were here last week, we had a, a graduation Sunday where we had seniors on our stage, and I gave them a charge, and I said something to them that I think kind of shocked them. I said, if you could take, if I had to pick like one part of my teaching from the youth ministry that you took, it's this point that you have the righteousness of Christ. And I say that because I'm so convinced that so many ways that we get the gospel wrong, they all basically go down to we forget our identity in Christ. We forget who we are. And so before we move on, this absolutely has to stick. It has to sink in the indicative, the truth of the gospel. And this is what Peter is establishing with the Gentiles. But then after that, we go on to the imperative in light of this, kind of the now what. And it responds, calls us to live differently. Look at verses 13 to 15. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, Peter knows that after the indicative, the response Christ changes how we think of suffering and persecution. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But in light of the response of the gospel, it changes how we think of suffering and persecution. And it says something that's kind of, kind of catches us off guard. Did you notice it? It says, you will be blessed. It doesn't really make sense, right? How is it in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, you'll be blessed? And even actually in the Greek, uh, the, the tense that that is, gives the indication that in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution, you will be blessed. And then it says that we suffer for righteousness' sake. A lot of times we hear the word righteousness, and we're used to kind of thinking it as a, as a legal term. When we talk about you receive the righteousness of Christ, that's now your status. It's actually used here to talk about the way that you live, the righteousness that, that you live. And here's the thing, and here's this big point. It's that you are different. It's that you're living different. There's a difference when a Christian, in light of the gospel, the things they choose to do, the choices they choose to make, how they respond to everything, it has to start looking differently than the culture and the ways that we left. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, as a Gentile, the way that you're living now, it has to look different from the people that you were hanging out with that didn't understand or know the gospel. It has to. When I was in college, I got a chance to be a part of my buddy proposing to his girlfriend. And uh, we, uh, we did it by, we're in Clemson, I went to Clemson, and we went to hike a mountain. I can't remember which one, but he was going to have like a picnic all set up at the top of a, a mountain, a cliff, essentially. Uh, and so the time came, and my job was to be from about right here to that front row. I was in a bush hiding. And my, my uh, roommates all were hunters, so they had like me decked out. I was from Rhode Island. I'd never seen camo gear. They had me all decked out in camo gear. It actually worked. Like, she, she never saw me. And my job is to record it. And so, sure enough, I, we, they got there, and um, it, was, it was a cloudy, kind of rainy day, and uh, it was kind of like a scene out of a movie where it, you kind of see what's happening. The clouds opened up as soon as he got down on one knee. The rain stopped, and he, he gets down, and, and he proposes... She says, yes, of course, it'd be a bad sermon illustration if she said no. 
Um, so she says yes, and then what, what happened next just shocked me. And, and honestly, a lot of my, my story, my walk with Christ is before and after this moment. She started telling him all of the things that she appreciates about who he is in Christ. And mainly, she says, she recognizes how he is steadfast in living his life differently from people around him. You see, the reality, this man that she was marrying has every, not excuse, but you could have understood how it would have, he would have had a temptation to, to stray. When he was 13, his uh, father was killed in a car accident. He was the oldest of three boys and essentially had to become a dad. And this man took the gospel and let it stay root in his life, and he lived differently. And you know what shocked me in that moment? No one would have been able to say those things about me if they looked at my life. If someone truly saw everything that happened in my life, and I say everything because at that time I was, I was careful to let the Christians see the Christian things in my life and let the non-Christians see everything else. No one would have been able to look and say, Tim's living his life differently. Tim's making different choices from other students, from the culture. He's abstaining from certain things. And it just broke me to my core. And a couple weeks later, I was at a service in Clemson, at Clemson Presbyterian, and you, probably a lot of you, this is part of your story. You, when something happens and you don't know if it's when you first became a Christian or if God just kind of got your attention, either way, God got my attention when I heard Romans preached and I heard the good news of the gospel. You see, what was happening in my life at that point I started hanging out with Christians that actually took their faith seriously. I started hanging out with Christians that actually let the truth of the gospel of what Christ did cost something in their lives. I was hanging out with some, some guys from, you've heard of RUF as our kind of denominations college ministry, and I, I was attracted to this, this, this genuineness to their faith. But at the same time, I don't think I really believed the gospel I hadn't really considered that, hey, the reason why I'm living differently is because someone paid a price for me 2,000 years ago, and that hadn't taken root in my life. And once it did, everything started to make sense of, now I get it. Here's why John is living different. Here's why he's so passionate about not just conforming to this world, and it took root in my life. Here's the reality. We aren't persecuted like is mentioned in 1 Peter or suffering to this level. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for the fact that we're not suffering or persecuted. I, I honestly am glad uh, that we have the freedoms that we do, that we're not persecuted. I don't know everyone in this room, but I'm assuming uh, almost none of us have experienced this level of persecution. But that's why it makes this point that much harder to swallow. Because what is being asked of us is are we willing to do kind of the watered-down level of persecution and suffering that we experience as Christians, even in this country? Are we willing to go to that level to be uncomfortable? My kind of youth ministry world was, uh, was kind of rocked a little bit this week. A lot of people sent me articles on something. There's this app called Snapchat. Every, I could hear the young people like, oh, no, he's going there. I'm going there. Uh, Snapchat was created as like a messenger photo app, and it was actually created by college students uh, who basically wanted to be able to send things to each other and have no accountability or record. So you can imagine it's not uh, the greatest thing to use. And this week on, I think, Wednesday, it came out that the writers of Snapchat were releasing something called Cosmo After Dark, which was after Fridays at 6 p.m. I won't go into too much detail, but 
basically it was pornography. It was essentially that, and they were going to launch it every Friday at 6 p.m., and I'm actually thankful to report on Saturday, like enough people complained and said, are you kidding me, that they actually canceled it and decided not to do it. That's, that's a small victory for that, but here's the thing. I don't think Snapchat has decided to pursue purity with what it shows young people. I don't think there was like a conversion at the top and they said, gosh, we really shouldn't be putting forth this material. It was a money decision. They looked at it and said, okay, enough people are now complaining about this that it's not going to go well for us, so we're going to take it out. So here's my point with that, and I'm asking this to anyone who has, and this isn't just about Snapchat, okay, but, but this is a lot related to it. Are you willing, is the cross of Christ enough to cause you to take away something like that? That you probably, those of you who are on it, you probably use it every like 20 minutes. Young people, I know it is how we communicate with people. Has the the truth of the gospel so affected you enough that you're willing to say, you know what, and that's not even actually suffering. I'm okay by living differently. Because what they've basically said is that we want to put forth something that's so destructive, so harmful for the sake of money. So we have to look at our lives and ask, what are the areas that we're unwilling to let the gospel go and make us uncomfortable? And it's not just, not just those of you who have Snapchat. You can fill in the blank with anything in our lives that we've not been willing to say, I'm going to allow the, the cross of Christ to change this about me. I'm going to allow there to be a filter on my phone because I recognize that when a king dies for you and that there's a response to that, it changes what you look at. I'm going to allow myself to to conduct myself differently in my marriage because my marriage is pointing to Christ laying down his life for me. And so my marriage has to look God-honoring. I'm going to allow it to change the way that I, that I think and respond and talk to my parents or my kids or anything. Fill in the blank. Think about the areas of our lives that we are so unwilling to let the gospel go in. You see, we pick and choose. We say, God, you can have this area and this area because that's okay for me to give it up. That doesn't cost me much. I can be okay with that. But, but this, this, and this, no, you can't have that. We have to be willing to let the gospel go in. There's something I tell my students. I think like, I don't say it often, but I probably say it about once a year. It's about lukewarm living. <clears throat> Here's the reality of what the scriptures say about being lukewarm. It says it's better to either fully pursue Christ and honor him with your life or reject him as essentially an atheist than to stay in being lukewarm. Do you realize that? That's shocking for us, because here's how we think it would go. We think that, okay, the best case scenario is to honor Christ with your life, you know, be on fire for him, fully believe these things. The second best case scenario is if you can kind of be lukewarm, just kind of be indifferent, have a foot in the Christian world uh, and a foot in the non-Christian world and still kind of keep some sin, but not fully reject Christ and just kind of kind of stay in the middle. And then surely the worst thing that I could do is to just all out reject Christ. The Bible doesn't say that. It says the most dangerous position that you can be in is in the middle of saying, I'm going to have a foot in both worlds. You know why that's so dangerous? Because someone who is kind of drowning can't actually scream. It's so obvious, someone who's actually drowning, we can say, yeah, he's drowning, they need help. But someone who is just kind of in trouble, we don't know enough to go pursue them. The Bible says about lukewarm living, listen to what it says in Revelation, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, 
with it, you're either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In the pot of God's grace, you can't call. You either fold or you go all in with your life. That is a reality that the scriptures talk about, of that it doesn't make sense. And that's what Peter is saying, is that, hey, this new reality, this gospel that you've now been saved, there is one appropriate response, and it's to allow it to change everything else about you. It's allow, it causes you to look different, not so that you're earning back, because you can never earn it back, but it has to change your life from the inside out. Everything has to look different. We confuse this so often. We confuse this, why is a Christian living the way that they are to our identity in Christ? I can promise you the saddest thing my daughters could ever say to me is come up to me and say, Dad, I cleaned my room. Can I be your daughter now? Honestly. And I know that's funny, but that is what we do to God. We go to God and say, God, I lived a Christian life. I did all these things. Can I be your son or daughter now? God on the cross is saying, I've purchased you. You are a part of my family. Think about the unconditional love that a mother or father has for their son or daughter. And if we have that unconditional love, or our parents have that unconditional love, think about how much a heavenly father says, no one is ever ripping you out of my hands. And so the reason why you live a Christian life has nothing to do with pursuing that identity. It has to do with because I've established you as my son or daughter. That's why to mess this up brings about a level of shame that I would not wish on my worst enemy. Because when you decide that you're going to try to earn your salvation, the moment you mess up, and you will mess up because we are all sinful, you take it as shame. You say, "Uh uh-oh, that was all that I had. I was putting everything into the fact that I could live a holy life or that I went to church and that I read my Bible enough and that my parents went to church and now I messed up again and I'm using that to earn my own righteousness and the gospel comes in and says, you've messed up the order. You've got to see yourself first as a son or daughter of the king and kings never will let go of you. Your father and mother will never let go of you. You have to have as that order. And Peter knows something, that once you get the indicative and then the imperative, and it brings us to our last point, there's a result that happens. And it's in verse 15 where it says, live out your faith, be willing to give a response. This is what happens when you live the truth of the gospel, when you live differently, people will come to you and say this. They'll always be prepared to make a defense who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Someone will come to you and say, defend yourself. Someone will come to you and say, you're, the way you're living doesn't really make sense. You're, you're, you're not doing certain things and you're doing certain things. What's going on? So Peter says, be willing to give a defense for the hope that is in you. And there's kind of two things I want to say about this before moving on. First, I think that it, it brings about two needs for a response. The second is the bigger one. But first, it does cause you to think and be able to defend the faith logically that we proclaim. When I was in seminary, I had a friend that became an atheist uh, from back home. And so what I did at that point was I I started reading a lot of the books that he told me he was reading, Dawkins, Hitchens, Bart Ehrman, a lot of uh, guys that will say that the Bible was forged and that there were scribal errors. And I started reading these books because I wanted to be able to engage him on this level. 
And what I actually found was, yes, he and I were able to have some conversations, but even more so than that, what it actually did was it strengthened my faith. It, it reminded me of, of the reasonableness of the faith that I claimed in Christ. And so a, a quick word about apologetics. You need to be doing that to be able to give a logical answer reason for the hope that is in you. And also know that when you encounter people who write books like that, uh, the guys are part of the New Atheism Movement, they're not going to give the logical Christian response at the end of their article. That was something I, I sorely realized. But understand, and I tell my students this a lot, just because you have not seen a response or know the proper response does not mean that there isn't one. Be ready to be able to defend the faith, but more so than that, here's what this opportunity gives us. It's that you get to talk about the living hope inside of you. That's what, that's what it says. It says, be ready not just to defend the faith, but be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And here's what you get to do. You get to point others to Christ. Listen to this verse. I, I think this is kind of a theme verse. If I had to pick one for all of 1 Peter... It's in 2.12. It says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So often we, we misunderstand why it is that we as Christians make different choices. I think a lot of times we, we want people to just look at us, right? But here's the reality. A dying, hurting world does not need to see more of Tim Pitzer. I promise you. A dying and hurting world needs to see a savior. They need to see a creator who laid his life down for them. They need a living hope. That's what they have to see. That is your end goal. Is so that you would be living in such a way that others would look and say something's different and it's pointing to something. And you'd say, and you get the opportunity to say, yeah, that hope it's pointing to, it's pointing to a cross. It's pointing to a savior that laid his life down for me. On Fridays, I teach a seventh grade Bible study at the middle school. And this past Friday was uh, the last one before kids got out for the summer. And the lesson we had was talking about new heavens, new earth, kind of future hope, a lot of what, what I mentioned in that aspect of this. And I'll, I'll never forget, we, we read a, a passage of scripture, and one of the moms that is kind of a helper that has a student in there just looked at me while like every, all these kids were looking at me, just looked at me and said, wow, that's awesome as if she was hearing it for the first time. It's so cool. This is the passage that we read to students to give them an encouragement of this is your living hope. It says, from Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true, that it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Wow, that's awesome. Listen, I don't know exactly how this works, but in some way, the Holy Spirit uses when we think about future hope, it allows us to get through our present circumstances. 
It allows us to get through the suffering and the persecution, or maybe just the ridicule when someone comes and says, why are you living differently? When you think about the future hope, it changes your perspective. I'm one of those that I probably look too forward to vacation when I have it coming up. Uh, I, I'm one of those that, like, if I have a vacation coming up and I'm, I'm stressed, like, I can get through so much. Like, even a 30-hour lock-in with middle and high school students. Um, sorry, guys, those are stressful on me. But, but I can, you guys have been there too, right? You can look and say, okay, it's Monday, I'm struggling, but next, this time next week I'll be, you know, fill in the blank, on a cruise, on a beach, whatever. I'm on vacation. Here's what I'm constantly convicted of whenever that comes up as a thought process in my mind. If a vacation has the power to get me through things like that, how much more should a future hope set in Christ where God says there's going to be no more mourning one day, no more crying, no more hurt, no more death. We'll no longer have to give death announcements or ask people, ask you to pray for a baby who is fighting for his life. That's going to be done one day. And so much more than that is that God is going to make it so that it's as if that never happened. Isn't that awesome? And how much would that change if we fully and 100% believe that? I want you to know, it takes the faith of a mustard seed to save you. You don't have to 100% never doubt that to have faith. That's because it is not your faith that saves you. It's the blood of Christ. And I am so thankful for that because I long for that day when my faith is no longer needed. When I can be able to see God, Christ, right in front of me and I can say the promises of God are true. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. It gets you through. Hope is that strong, people. A living hope is that effective in our lives for change. I don't have an Avengers reference for you. I'm sorry. Everyone's asking about it. But I've got a different one. In a movie, The Hunger Games, there's this uh, scene where President Snow, uh, real quick recap on Hunger Games. I'm going to spoil the movie probably, but it's like 10 years old. So if you haven't seen it, you're probably not going to see it at this point. Um, it's a, a movie about, there's a bunch of people, they have to kind of fight to the death, and there's only one person that lives, and they get to be the victor and everything, and the evil President Snow is talking to the organizer of the games. And he looks at him, and he says, why do we have a winner in the Hunger Games? The guy says, what do you, what do you mean, why do I have a winner? He said, why do we have a winner? Why don't we just, you know, they can kind of manipulate the scene and everything, and he says, why don't we just kill everybody? He says, I don't know. He says, because of hope. Hope is the only thing more powerful than fear. And he says, a little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. He knows that, that hope set before people fully in all of its revealing is too much power. It's enough for them to wake up and realize the, destruction, the destructive world that's being created for them and to say, enough is enough. We've, we've pictured what it's going to be like without this, and we're going to cling to that, and it's going to change how we live. I love that part of the movie because it fully paints a picture of the power of hope. That's why the scriptures say in the midst of suffering and persecution and some of the hardest things that this life can throw at you, they say, but none of it pales in comparison to that day when you will see Christ face to face. When the true outcome of your faith is revealed. I want to conclude with this week, um, my kids got sick. I've got a, a three-year-old, a one-and-a-half-year-old, and a, a three-week-old. Um, I know I'm not crazy. Sorry. I just like kids. Um, so the three-year-old and the one-and-a-half-year-old a week ago uh, got sick and decided to have 
a stomach flu and croup on top of one another at the same time, like clockwork. Uh, literally the same day they started getting sick. And, and our middle daughter, Clara, is one and a half, and she's, she's my crazy kid. I absolutely love her, but she's kind of nuts. Like the highs are really high, and the lows are like the world is ending. This is awful. And so her being sick really threw us for a loop, to say the least. And there was one day, I'll never forget it, there was one day where, like, just the whole day, she just needed me to hold her. And, and there's one time where she was, like, five feet away, and she just looks up at me. She's got, like, no pants, no shirt, just a diaper. I don't know why, but that just made it that much more pathetic. She looks at me, and she's just, like, bursts into tears. And, and I can't tell what is, like, matted down hair and snot and tears. Like, you can't even tell what facial features are what. And so she starts running to me, and of course, I'm her dad. I love her, right? I pick her up, but I also knew that I'm preaching in six days. So I'm kind of holding my head back and, you know, kind of bracing for it. Here's what I am so thankful. I am so thankful we have a God that is not like that, who on the cross did not take his arms down and say, keep your, keep your filth away from me. Keep your snot-filled sin, your filthy rags. He kept his arms up there fully and said, bring on your sickness. Bring on your shame. Bring on the judgment of the wrath of God the Father that I lived perfectly for and that I had perfect communion with for all of eternity. And now in judgment, He's going to look at me and see me as He should see you with your sin. That's the kind of Father you have. That's how different He is from we are. And I'm so thankful of how different He is. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now go and live your life in praise to the one who paid your debt. Let's pray.